So, Dave, Akumu, thanks very much for um, agreeing to sit down and have a chat with me. Thanks for inviting me into your home in sunny, sunny Deptford. Long overdue, Rich, long overdue. Thanks for coming. I wanted to kick off this series of, um, of podcasts with you for a number of reasons. First one being that you are, I think, my, my first ever, ever client. Uh, so uh, we're going back away. Yeah. Um, think it was a lovely lady called Karen Karen Pearson who used to produce Giles's show years and years ago. Yes. Who, when I first started out, I kind of knew her through a friend of a friend and asked if she had any tips for an aspiring music lawyer. And she said, hands down, the most talented band uh, who she'd come across in recent years was a band called Jade Fox. Uh, obviously the previous incarnation of the, the Invisible. Um, and so I remember coming to see you in uh, a, a fantastic show just off Charlotte Street uh, with Gwil from the Dolly Daggers also playing um, and was just uh, blown away and had the privilege to work with you ever, ever since. But prior to that, and how Jade Fox began. How the Fox happened, yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, I don't know how far back to go, but I guess my, my sort of passion for music was started to emerge when I was about 11 I guess um, I'm, I'm the youngest of eight and my, my siblings all they're all music lovers and they all had great record collections and um, so I was I was being sort of spoon fed classics you know um, <laughs> from an early age I had like my, my older sisters they all kind of we, we lived in Vienna and um, uh, I guess it was yeah it was kind of the 80s and so there was all this amazingly flamboyant pop music being made. <laughs> <laughs> my sister's kind of took it in turns being Grace Jones, so she had a huge impact on my life very early on. Um, and they were listening to, you know, soul and funk and disco and 80s pop, and they'd make me mixtapes and stuff. And um, As well as Grace Jones, anything stand out as, a kind of, as having a that kind of, that eureka moment of, like, this is... This is what I want to be doing the rest of my my life. Any other records? I didn't. I didn't sort of get to that point um, really until until I started playing an instrument, which was when I was about fourteen. But I was definitely having this intense kind of relationship with artists. So Grace Jones and Prince were sort of um, big ones when I was when I was younger, and then um, I st- remember hearing jazz for the first time um, when I was about. 12 maybe 13 and um that the whole kind of language and aesthetic really spoke to me like hearing miles davis and charlie parker and dizzy gillespie and um the the sort of um nature of that music just it completely resonated because i i could even at that age or whatever i could i could feel that it was um, there was this architecture to that music. I could feel like there was structure and yeah. it was there was a sort of poise, but there was this danger and freedom, and it just felt so kind of alive to me. Um, but I never imagined that I would I'd ever sort of attempt to play anything as sophisticated as that. But I I loved listening to it. I really really loved the sound and how it made me feel. Um, but it wasn't until I started playing instruments that. I very quickly realised that I was good for nothing else, really. Yeah. <laughs> and was it encouraged? Like when you're in, you're in a large family, um, and we uh, we talked before about um, how you, you know there was a really strong work ethic or whatever in, mm. you, in in your your family. Was being a professional musician something that was encouraged, or did you did you find that you were being uh, sort of encouraged to, to pursue pursue other more uh, mundane routes in life. <laughs> mundane and legitimate routes. Um, <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm really grateful to my parents because I think they gave me a lot of space. I think I, I really lucked out because being the youngest, um, you know, and they'd, they'd already had, you know, <laughs> seven goes um, before they got to me. I think by the time I came out, they just weren't really that bothered. The resistance, in a, in a, the resistance, <laughs> resistance was pretty low. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they'd sort of seen everything. Um, I think, um, in all honesty, I think they hoped that it was a hobby. Yeah. Um, that it was just this thing that I was passionate about. I was quite academic, so I think my, my dad sort of fantasised about me kind of mirroring <laughs> him in all ways. But um, I, I just found my own space with that stuff. And um, 
I suppose we've had a sort of unspoken agreement, which actually um, it kind of worked out fine for me. I didn't I didn't feel pressurized by my parents to pursue a particular route. I actually, you know, I chose to do an academic degree, yeah. um, and that was something that I wanted to do, and it felt like my own choice. So I, I'm just very grateful that um, I felt a degree of independence. And and when where my parents and I would disagree, I felt one of the clearest expressions of their love was that they would sort of go, we don't necessarily agree, but we trust you to make your own yeah. decisions. And, and um, that that's something that's been very important, you know, for me and my entire life, really. So I'm really grateful to both of them for that. But um, yeah, it certainly wasn't something that was encouraged. I remember, I remember when I, I told, I thought I wanted to be Miles Davis, I kind of fantasised about playing the trumpet and being this kind of virtuosic, stylish <laughs> musician character. And um, I remember asking my, my, I think I asked my mum if I could have a trumpet. I don't think I even got a response <laughs> out of her. You know, it was, I think maybe she chuckled. Yes. <laughs> so that was about it. Really. So was, was a guitar always first instrument and, and then, you, you know, you, you play, uh, you, you play other instruments as, as well, but the guitar's first first and foremost yeah exactly so I yeah I had this fantasy about the trumpet nothing came of it I think around that time I was also trying to persuade them to buy me you know like a medium format camera and all sorts of I was always kind of coming up with things that they, <laughs> they should be buying me um, and yeah it didn't amount to much at that time because we were we were actually pretty um, yeah we were having quite a hard time financially around then I remember and you've moved had you moved back to London by this point or we'd moved to yeah, London yeah, yeah okay. exactly so um, so we left um, this this life behind in Vienna my dad was he had been working for the United Nations and you know we lived in a big house and I have really fond memories of, of growing up in Vienna with all of my siblings around and then we sort of dispersed when I was around 11 came to London and our, our circumstances changed dramatically so it was actually a really um, disorientating and difficult time for me um, and uh, yeah around that time my brother who was um, a real he's a real music lover you know he had kind of an enormous record collection and he'd started playing the saxophone he played guitar and um, one summer holiday he came back with an acoustic guitar and um, he walked into to our living room and I was sat there with headphones on. I spent a lot of time with headphones on and I was listening to um, uh, Tracy Chapman's first album. He asked me what I was listening to. I told him and he said, I can show you how to play that song. And I didn't understand at that time that that's how it worked, yeah. that someone could actually just unlock that yeah. knowledge and give you those tools to basically express this thing that, Which you, song? that you love. Um, I think it was Fast Car. Yeah. So he showed me the chords and um, that was it really. I just, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put the guitar down and um, that became my sort of um, sacred space. Um, I'd just go up to my room and put my favourite records on and try and play along with them and work things out. And yeah, I just became totally immersed in, in music that way. And this was... This so this was at a time when you sort of hinted at it earlier, where your your family was going through. You, you your father had left the United Nations. Yeah. Um, explain the the background to that. Is that can we, can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He'd um he had so he'd worked for the United Nations for for I think about fifteen years, and the, he'd ended up in in Austria in um, self-imposed uh, exile, I suppose, having been a political prisoner in, in, in Kenya yeah. um, after Kenya uh, regained um, her independence. Uh, many intellectuals were encouraged to come back to help um, sort of restructure yeah. the, the, the new country. And my dad worked for... Um, uh, for the government for a short while, but basically kind of um, became a thorn in, in the side because he he um, he was speaking out against corruption. So he ended up in in prison and was um, eventually released and um, uh, and made his way to to Vienna basically to to escape what might have been a grisly end if had he stayed in Kenya. So um, that's how 
um, we ended up there. My brother and I were born in Vienna, and um, so I grew up there um, for the first part of my life till I was about 11. Um, and uh, when his time at the UN had sort of run its course, yeah. you know, he, he always had a desire to come back and work for his country, really. I think that's what he... I think that's what he would have loved to have done. Um, so he was sort of in this period of limbo, trying to decide what his next move was. And, and so really it was a very uncertain time. I didn't know if we were going to stay in London no. or if we were going to move to America or or try and move back to Kenya. Um, but we ended up here in London um, for, for longer than I think anyone thought we would. So huge, as a, as a you know, young, youngest member of a large family, mm. huge, huge amounts of uncertainty and turmoil you know, yes. at, at a point when you know being a teenager is, is hard, hard enough anyway yeah the guitar is effectively was a constant through that and definitely um, yeah. and so that prompted many many hours of and it does that's i think when you're starting out when you're discovering everything an instrument has has to offer mm. it probably doesn't feel like when you learn in that way rather than being you go to piano lessons and get made to learn, learn scales and things mm. but when you learn in that way where you're finding it out yourself presumably hours upon hours of, of practice get get put in yes um, you know so it doesn't feel like did you feel like you were disciplining yourself to do it or it was just it, you were just kind of you, you were just throwing yourself into it because that's where your passion was yeah definitely the latter it was it was like breathing you know I, I, I needed it desperately and um, it never felt like work I, I just couldn't um, I couldn't get enough of it it really was um, having that instrument in my hand gave me access to something um, so powerful um, there was such it was like plugging into to the divine you know yeah. it was just like a, it was just like you know, it was like being able to pick up a phone and talk to God, you know, it was just, it was such a, um, yeah, so it kind of saved my life, really, and um, I, I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but it really did, um, and I felt, yeah, completely absorbed in this journey of discovery, and I just wanted more and more and more, and yeah, I, I remember driving my siblings crazy, you know, because it's probably the, the sounds that I was making were very far from divine, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, what was going on internally was, um, it was a, it was a sort of communion, um, and a communing and, you know, learning to, to channel something and to express myself and to have, to have a, a dialogue, you know, that could go as deep as it needed to go. And somehow this instrument was allowing me to access that. And in, then in terms of so you you're honing your technical ability ability mm. um but at the same time are you are you on this sort of discovery of of, of the artists so the, you know we're going to keep talking about prince i'm, I'm sure yeah. but prince was kind of a gateway drug yeah um, sure. and yeah. then and but but you you're digging deeper into that through 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 that period as well as uh, you know Hundreds of other artists. I'm, I'm sure. Do you, do you, you remember any artists who you felt were kind of unlocking that that next level of, of, of potential in what in what you were doing and in, in what you were what you were listening to? Yeah. So uh, Prince um, was was a, was the big one, really. Um, the first records that well cassettes that I bought actually um, were Sign of the Times, um, De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising. Yeah. Um, so I guess opening up to that whole world of like sample-based music and collage and and sort of hearing where those things came from as well, you know, recognising some of them from my siblings' record collection and all that kind of stuff, that was having a real impact as well. Which you don't, you don't incorporate much in the way of sampling into your into your work. Is, no. Is that is is it some is that something you consciously do you feel that you're is that something you rule out totally, or is that is that is that because um, it, it seemed in the last year in particular, mm. it, there seems to have been a real resurgence in in sampling. You would have thought, you know, there's some huge court cases um, in the year, couple of years before, mm. and you would thought that would put people people, people off the line. Yeah, but yeah. it seems to have been there's there's you know, and it's been done. I think a lot of people feel in the last year, um, it kind of having is. Having a, a real kind of renaissance in terms of um, sure. in terms of the way people are approaching that is mm. so. What are your 
how do you view sampling now? Yeah, it's it's um it's a double-edged sword. I think it's um I think what I'm always looking for in music is is kind of depth and craft basically yeah. and. Um, you know, I, just this morning I was kind of getting totally hyped on the on the new Tribe Called Quest album, and you know the what they do with samples is just so totally ins- inspiring. Yeah. And De La Soul and, and Public Enemy and those those sorts of artists that I grew up listening to, um, where um, the sample is is kind of deconstructed or or applied in such a, a creative way, it becomes like. You know, similar to the use of an instrument, um, I I really really respect that and love that and find that incredibly exciting. But I think a lot of sometimes sampling is is very complacent. It's a shortcut know. to a hook, basically. Basically, yeah. and that that doesn't really interest me at all. Yeah. Um, and I guess uh, out of respect for the craft, um, you know, I it, I sort of feel like I've been absorbed in other crafts. And, yeah. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe I'll I'll sort of drown in, in the craft of, sa- of sampling at some point in yeah. my, my work but um, I've been so absorbed by other things it's just not something that I would do lightly I guess you know um, or f- um, flippantly or hopefully not in a complacent way yeah. so I've sort of st- steered away from that in, in my own um, in my own work and I guess you know but I do I sometimes like sample myself and like yeah. go back to things and create new pieces of music from old ones and all that kind of stuff um, but it just feels like um, there's such a wealth of stuff to explore within that already that I've, I've not really felt the need to kind of go down the sampling route yeah well that's something to look forward to perhaps <laughs> yeah, exactly. if, if you do hear the if we hear the, the, the freaks of that um, so yeah so going, going back to your your uh, your life life story in terms of your uh, in terms of what kind of is kind of uh, informed your uh, creative journey, I suppose. I was really, really fortunate that I, I moved schools quite a few times. I ended up um, uh, at a brilliant school in South London called Pimlico, and they had this um, special music course at the time, which was um, it was a way that you could get into the school. Like if you weren't yep. in the catchment area, um, it, it just if you had an interest in music and an aptitude for music, you could apply to get on the special music course. And I, I actually wasn't on the special music course, but I profited from the fact that the school had this thing because there was brilliant music tuition um, and I had an amazing teacher Um, there were amazing music teachers there I had an incredible guitar teacher called John Paracelli and he um, he he's a fantastic musician and he 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 actually played on lots of records that I had and he was um, part of a group called a seminal British jazz group called Loose Tubes and I had their records and um, so it was just very exciting to be able to go in and have lessons with this guy who I listened to, you know, I'd listened to for a good few years before that. You talk about the craft, there is, I think there's probably that an element that draws people towards it, not the fame and fortune, but mm. the, the kind of the elusive nature, nature, nature of it and I suppose meeting people firsthand who've been involved in, in that life is again is a kind of... It gives you more encouragement to move along, move move further down that road. Definitely, yeah. I felt like being in an environment where, actually, this thing which had seemed totally magical to me um, and almost unattainable, was it was I was being given access to it. And yeah. It was being demystified without losing its its magic. If yeah. You know what I mean. So, um, it being in a school like Pimlico was wonderful because. There were people my own age who were as bonkers about music as I was, if not even more bonkers about it. And they were, you know, they were just so easy going about it. But I could recognise that their craft was more developed than my own, and yeah. that that was really inspiring because it felt like these people again could give me access to the things that I wanted, you know. And what I think I've yearned for ever since I was a boy is is a sense of like growth and and development. It's like that's really what what kind of makes me feel happy so um, it was just brilliant to be in an environment where it felt like those things were accessible and um, you know John was was a fantastic teacher because like all great teachers he he met me where I was at and he, yeah. he understood what he understood what my desire was and you know I remember I, I kind of had like 
a sort of version of the arrogance of youth and you know I'd, I'd, I'd sort of been teaching myself blues and guitar because I love blues and I listened to like John Lee Hooker and Stevie Ray Vaughan and all this stuff and I you know I'd learnt the blues scale and yeah. so I, I remember walking into my first lesson with John Paracelli and saying okay I want to learn the jazz scale <laughs> and he just sort of looked at the floor and shook his head you know um, and then from there you know we went on this 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 long journey of him showing me how kind of Western harmony works basically and giving me these tools that would allow me to explore any type of music, yeah. you know, harmonically. Um, so that was going on on one side and then I was also encouraged to go and audition for a place called the Weekends Arts College and this was when I was about 16. Yeah. And it was this place in Kentish Town that, that um, put on music workshops, um, jazz workshops actually. Um, and you know, as as well as like dance and drama, but I was I was interested in music, so I kind of went along with my guitar and auditioned. And there were all these, um, you know, well, actually, I guess it was quite a broad age range, probably from like fourteen to to early twenties. You know, people in their early twenties, just all these young people who were really passionate about music, just coming along to audition to get into these classes. And yeah. s- suddenly, I was surrounded by you know, all these contemporaries who are just fascinating characters and... Who, who um, presumably many of whom are, are active today and they've not all... Yeah. They've not all uh, gone and... <coughs> uh, <laughs> gone and given up uh, music for accountancy. Though. Yeah. So can you... Are there any 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 people, any famous alumni um, who, who were at that particular... Yeah, so there were there, there were a load of musicians who were sort of like the generation before us who yeah. who I kind of knew had had attended this place. So it was you know it was intriguing to me to go there. So um, people like Jason Rebello, who's a fantastic pianist, who yeah. I think now plays with Sting and still plays a lot of jazz and um, bass player called Wayne Bachelor and Courtney Pine, I think had attended. Wow. So there were all these people you know that we we admired and looked up to, Julian Joseph. Um, so there was that aspect to it and then the people that I attended I was there for a year and and um, I was in a brilliant class and, and um, some of those musicians I still play with today um, Tom Herbert who plays bass in the Invisible he's, he was in my class and that's where our, our friendship was, was forged amazing really. I didn't, I didn't um, and uh, Tom Skinner as well yep. who's um, one of my favourite drummers of all time and um, uh, he yeah I remember he was a couple of years younger than me and um, I remember him so clearly from the audition because you know it was potentially a really sort of daunting <laughs> atmosphere you know kind of coming into this room and the walls were just lined with musicians and people were kind of being called up to, to come and play and, and um, uh, the great Ian Carr who was the, he was our teacher he, he was sort of listening to us and kind of assessing whether whether we belonged at, you know, what level we belonged at. And um, uh, I remember Skinner getting up to play the drums and, you know, he I'm pretty sure he had to sort of climb up onto the stool, you know, <laughs> he was about 14 or something. And he, he was, he's played pretty much as he plays today with this kind of totally sort of fluid musicality. And I just remember I thinking I'd never seen anyone kind of my age or younger play the drums like that and um, you know it was just completely uh, just blew me away blew and, that, my socks off. and that's a totally elusive bit isn't it I think that's you know you can you can do all the hard yards that you do in term in terms of practicing mm. um, and you can have access to all the training and whatever but it's that element of mus- musicality that you as a as an artist you presumably have uh, very fine-tuned um, radar for, for seeing that in, in, in other artists but which sure. I think other people I think the general public um, will can can pick up on that um, as well and it just seems to be a it's a very rare it's a very rare rare thing it's probably getting getting rarer mm. um, and I think if we look at you know all of the the Amazing icons who have uh, who passed away in two thousand two thousand and sixteen. That's I think it's not just that they were you know very famous people or yeah. very successful musicians. There seemed to it's this kind of this very rare 
species of person mm. who has that innate musicality, which you don't you don't come across every every day. No. So I wonder. I mean, we talked about the circumstances which and the uh, conditions which which kind of have brought you on this on this along this path mm. and. Um, and I think it feels like perhaps in the sixties, seventies, or eighties, even those co- those conditions were more. Uh, they, the soil was more fertile, maybe for de- for developing that um, uh, developing that musicality. Yeah. Um, do you am I? Do you think that's? Do you think that's an unfair? Do you think I'm being unfair on the cu- on the current generation um, of, of musicians to say that it's it's probably harder to cultivate that musicality than it than it was in previously because of um, changes in the cultural environment it's a really important question um, I think it's very it's a really difficult. long question <laughs> it's, it's difficult to um, it's difficult to assess really but I do think the important thing is to be aware of how um, precious those those um, cultural structures and contexts are, and actually that we have a duty to to preserve them because we're basically lost without without them, you know. And I, I think it's a it's I'm sure each generation has its own sort of unique set of challenges. Um, but what I see with with the guys kind of coming up now and trying to find an identity and is. There's, I think there's a real challenge in that relationship to, to craft and to sort of communal collective development basically yeah. because everything is so sort of fragmented and, and geared towards the individual and um, it's in, it's, there's a sort of short-termist kind of immediate um, sort of voracious appetite for, for the immediate and a, and a complete imbalance of expectation in terms of, you know, what it might take to cultivate something and it feels like where I completely relished and thrived off a sense of process and a sense yeah. of like being able to see myself grow and get better at something and to be surrounded by people who are much better than me and, and, and um, who are willing to share information with me. I, I, I don't know how much that is a part of a young person's experience. Um, uh, you know, in in this day and age, with with the structures that exist, and I just think we have a responsibility to try and create, um, to create that fertile ground because there's actually no need, there's no reason why it shouldn't be there. Um, and I do think that when people identify, um, when they actually are are allowed to have that experience, they really identify with it and and really really respond to it. But I think there's there's work to be done. Yeah. Yeah, that's really. I think um, I sent you a, a a link to a thing to list, uh, before before we met up today, just to give you a, a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell, just to give you an idea of the kind of thing I was <laughs> aspiring towards on a mm. on a, a much lower budget, and we, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not slightly compa- less not, advertising. Not comparing myself to Malcolm Gladwell, that's yeah. you know, that's for people to decide in their own <laughs> in their own time, um, but. Um, but the the episode I sent you was what an episode from his revisionist history podcast um, uh, called Hallelujah, and it was and it really it, it talks about about basically two different ways in which uh, genius uh, expresses itself or develops itself, genius mm. or you know however you want want to describe it, and it divides. He he um, references a writer called David Gallanson who. Um, who identifies the difference between what he calls conceptual artists and experimental artists. He says that conceptual artists basically peak very, create their best work very early on in their career because mm. they're able to they arrive at what they decide what they want to express and they execute it in a kind of a, a masterpiece fashion. And he cites examples of people like Picasso who created a lot of. Um, his most highly regarded work in his twenties, mm. uh, and he contrasts that with um, artists who are he calls experimental artists um, who who tinker and who constant, constantly revisit and 
um, and reinterpret their work. And so the writer that he cites looks at people like um, uh, artists like Cezanne, but he's also uh, he also draws um, comparisons with Malcolm Gladwell's favourite artist Elvis Costello in the way that Elvis Costello constantly re- revisits his work but also in people like late Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. when you think that apparently a song like Hallelujah was something like 10 years in the writing and mm. then and then took 15 years of other people's iterations to become this what's recognised as a, as, as a masterpiece yes. and so going back to what you were just saying it does feel like very the the environment very much encourages and lends itself to that to the first sort of conceptual artist because the tools and technology um, everything allows you to to execute your creative vision perfectly um, first time almost yeah but there isn't so much um, recognition or uh, or or support or um, or just the environment for for the second type type of artists who perhaps go about things in a in a less direct way in a mm. more more creative way. Now it's not to say you know we wouldn't want a world without uh, Picasso or, or Cezanne, but it sure. does feel like at the moment it's more more weighted to um, to to the to the first yeah. the first half. Absolutely, absolutely. What, so where where would you, in that kind of continuum where would you see uh, where would you see Prince sits in that continuity? He obviously, at the heights of his powers, he was able to just mm. seemingly execute um, and his creative vision instantly. And yeah. just, it, it just there was a period where his music was just coursing, coursing through him. No doubt, yeah. But it didn't happen overnight. And you know, you no. you, you you have to you get you have to get a number of albums. In before any even at Dirty Mind, it sounds that's not a, that's not the sound of a of a fully finished. No, it, that's not the sound of perfection. It's no. the sound of someone yeah. trying to get this this out out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I, I guess um, the, you know that that Malcolm Gladwell podcast is is, is really interesting. Um, and you know it's a those two ideas of, of the kind of the experimental and the conceptual kind of creative developer um, it's kind of really striking and easy to latch onto but I do think people are more complex than that yeah. and, and um, you know whenever you have a sort of kind of binary assessment of something <laughs> it's 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 gonna it's kind of by its nature kind of slightly reductive and, yeah yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I think every every moment, like a like a Prince or a Picasso, is preceded by all kinds of unknown mysteries and, and development. And it, it may well be that a person has a season that is, you know, about that kind of extraordinary flow. Um, but I, I just think you can't you can't take human beings out out of process. No. I think as soon as you do that, um, some, it's like it's a dehumanizing thing. Basically, it's like we cease to be human in a way, and um, I think that's a real difficulty with our culture: is that we don't have, um, we don't celebrate process nearly enough. Um, we'll see the validity of it, and it's it's so essential to to human development. And you know, I think there's space for all of these different manifestations yeah. and they're all really, really important and it's really important that they they interact with one another and that they're in dialogue with one another. Um, but um, I see, yeah, I, I see this issue, like my, my kind of like um, pipe smoking sort of gripe with, with like contemporary culture is that I, <laughs> I, think that, I think that we sort of, we're, we're disconnected from from a lot of the things that are most valuable to the human experience, basically, yeah. in, in my opinion, you know, so um, I think that relationship to, to process is, is more important to me than how it's, how that process then manifests, basically, that makes sense. Are you, and are you talking about the, um, the, I think what's striking at the moment is the, uh, the relationship we have with bad, bad stuff? Or perceived bad 
or perceived neg- negative negative things mm-hmm. that we've kind of over the last few years we've got used to um, not having to look at bad things. You know, the, mm-hmm. you know, just we can we can we can turn our t- turn away from from those those things or things that we we find distasteful or yeah. or, or difficult to, to deal with. Um, but those things exist. And you know what? I, it, uh, there's an amazing. I, I don't want to get into 2016 um, <laughs> because we'll, uh, we'll just crack open the whiskey and start and start feeling feeling sad. No, no, it's good. I think it's good. Um, there's an amazing author called Paul Kingsnorth who wrote a book called called The Wake that was um, um, was shortlisted for the Booker last year, I think. Um, and he wrote an incredible incredible piece which I, I will send you about about 2016 and comparing it to this sort of Nordic folk tale about um, a, a, the, the king and queen who, who are wishing for children and they end up having they're being cursed and having two children a good child and a, and a kind of a, a lindworm a kind of a, 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 a sort of a serpent serpent right. child we they cast out the cast out the bad one um, and and uh, raise raise the prince, yeah. and what he says in this this book is that you know culturally and in society generally we that's what we've done we've cast out the bad the bad thing, and that what's happened in 2016 is it's come it's come back in <laughs> come back we've we've uh, we've looked it looked it straight straight in, in the face yeah um, which is uh, which is an interesting way way of looking at it but I think it ties into what you're saying about about the about process and about dealing with you know dealing with the the, the struggles of um, of honing a craft or or the create or the difficulty of the creative process yeah I'm, I'm just I'm glad you've sort of raised this this idea of, of confronting difficulty in life because yeah I do think there is again a real culture of escapism and, and denial and we're you know we're all, we're all guilty of it um, to one degree or another and we've sort of been conditioned to, to treat life in that way but um, you know this this whole sort of narrative around 2016 I, I, I'm kind of building up a resolve against um, painting it in a particular light because I, I think that actually what we're seeing is, is kind of the cycle of, of human experience and and um, you know, I think human experience is, is will has always been and will always be about um, you know a degree of suffering and a degree of transcendence. But what's in, what's in sort of essential within that is that we're we're actually willing to look at what life is and willing to confront what's there. As as you say, you know, I, I definitely relate to that idea. And when I think about periods in my life where I feel I've grown and I've developed and, and become maybe hopefully a better version of myself. It's been as a result of facing things rather than running away from things. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think um, you know, it's interesting how we get to the end of 2016 and social media is kind of awash with this sort of like, fuck 2016 <laughs> sort of, you know good riddance and all this kind of stuff and it's it's sort of really simplistic it's a very simplistic way of looking at, at what this this journey is and actually if again I think if we had a clearer relationship to, to process I don't think we would be so paralysed by difficulty um, and I do think that's the challenge that lies before us you know, you know people who consider themselves liberal thinkers and um, optimists and enlightened people and, and you know people who are interested in, in hope and moving things forward it's actually so important that we don't buy into this kind of simplistic narrative of like you know this there's this sort of dark shadow that's being yeah. cast and we have no idea what this is about and like oh my god look this is happening this is awful and that's kind of the end of the dialogue yeah. it's like it's, it's just really it's really really pathetic it's kind of pitiful and it exposes I think a real inadequacy um, in, in our relationship to process and actually how um, difficulty can be transformed into something redemptive basically yeah you know? and it's interesting how the the, the Lindholm myth ends it, it, well, it, you know, spoiler alert. Um, it, 
after the Lindworm has been let back in, into the into the kingdom, to, much to everyone's horror, and he's taken two two brides and eat, eaten both both of them. <laughs> the, um, I think it ends with the third bride basically on their on their wedding night. She's told to wear three. She's told to wear three three shawls or three three uh, dresses, um, and every time the uh, Lindworm asks her to remove a dress. She tells him to remove to shed to shed his skin. Mm. And by the time he's ended, he shed all his skin. She embraces him, and there's a redempt. There's a re- kind of a redemptive process in it. Yeah. It's a very strange and odd story. Yeah. It kind of it's it's it struck struck a note with with this writer who I say I've got a huge amount of time for, and it, and it's and I was thinking about it on the way. Over here, when I thought we were going to be talking about two thousand and sixteen, mm. but um, you know, it, it has. I mean, it's been a very unusual year by any measure in terms, in terms yeah. of the icons which have, have dis- disappeared. We're not going to dwell on all of those, but I w- would like to just come back to Prince again because yeah. he's, he's such an important artist for you, and mm. I feel like you've you probably as someone who's had such a um, I, you know, you've never met him. You, you've never met no, him. No, no, sadly. And, and no. Would, you, would you wanted to meet? Because some people kind of um, uh, have have mixed feelings about me, meeting, meeting, uh, meeting hero. heroes. Yeah. yeah, I would have been bang up for me. <laughs> I have to say, like, when I've I've not really ever been disappointed meeting my heroes. It's always been it's always been great, and um, I I feel like. I mean, I, I, I'm, I've totally kind of made peace with the fact that we never met. I'm not like, you know, writhing around at night going, <laughs> oh, never met him. But, um, you know, it, it, it's lovely to know that some, I kind of sort of made it into his orbit a little bit, like through, um, you know, he, um, they used to play Wildest Moments before he did those shows oh, that, wow. that he did in London. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, it's just kind of nice to think that his ears were on something that I made, and um, and you know I I saw him play a, a handful of times. You know, one of them was a was a really intimate show. And did you one of those after? Did you see the after shows or, or more in, more intimate than? Um, yeah, it was uh, the the one the most intimate was um, at the Electric Ballroom, Camden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so it was like it was it was amazing watching him sound check and yeah. like <laughs> you know just like standing pretty much at his feet, kind of watching him shred for his <laughs> life. Um, yeah, because he was definitely having like another moment with the guitar, and that was really that was really great for me as a as a guitarist. And he is like pretty much my favorite guitarist, and and yeah, so um, I'm I'm grateful for all of those moments really. So I mean, everyone has something to. I mean, everyone has something to say about all all of these icons who, yes. who, who passed. But I'm just interested to hear from someone who's had such a, an artist who's had such a profound influence on, on what what you what you do. A, what made him so special as an mm-hmm. artist? I mean, everyone has has their their take on that. But mm. I'd be really interested to hear your your take on that. Yeah. And B, you know what, what your what process you went through um, when when you realised that, that that person's no longer walking around, around on the same planet. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, yeah, for, I mean, what, what made him so special? Um, I, he, he was definitely a, a, a unique creature and, um, uh, and I guess what I see is that combination of exactly what you're talking about before. It's like a it's a, it's a, it's about when a when a gift comes into connection with with graft and craft yeah. basically um, you know and that is where and at a precise time and place yes. where it, where that graft and craft are, are relevant to yes it, exactly to a huge, yeah. huge number of people I mean I kind of like to think you know that regardless of what happened and you know kind of externally that that. Prince is the sort of person who kind of would have gone on that journey kind of regardless of who was looking you know because it, it just feels like his relationship to music is so was so sort of profound and spiritual that um, you know so, something was driving him you know probably to a point of like I, you know where it was unhealthy but <laughs> but um, but nonetheless there was this 
really, really powerful kind of spiritual kind of compulsion to to explore music to the nth degree. Yeah. Um, and what what comes across is is this this balance of um, of the grace and mystery of something kind of unknown and and sort of ever expanding and the hard toil of like this you know there's no doubt that he's spent time like endless amounts of time working on on his singing and on his playing and on being able to play all these instruments that stuff doesn't just fall into your lap even if you're incredibly gifted you know and the other elements of it as well in terms of you can play you can learn to play as as well as as well as print but mm. then it's the song craft and the, yeah. and the perform you know the the way that he could perform as as well combining mm. all of all of those things it's just you know it's it's not it doesn't feel like something we'll, we'll see again again soon. No, and it's I, I, but I, I, what I do take heart from is this this idea, and I think all of my favourite musicians really have have an element of this. There's there's a sense of um, I, I I love it when you can feel that something is studied but in a liberated way, you know, and I think that's that is about inspiration and I think what I identify with all of these icons and all these amazing people who are no longer here and there's a real sense of grief and loss but where I have hope you know is that they they sh- they show you a way you yeah. know they they illuminate the way and and you know what prince is saying to me is is be yourself be connected to what you love and and what you're inspired by and and study it. Yeah. Learn it. Like learn learn that craft and take it apart and, and own it. And that's these are beautiful messages and they they they're everlasting and I know there'll be people who who share that message, you know. There won't be another prince, but there'll be lots of people who continue to, to carry that torch and, and to put that message out into the world and they will always be important. Whether yeah. or not they're acknowledged or recognised, those people will always be important. Yeah. Um, and so, I know, I, I know from because you know you um, you uh, released a, a record or you or put a record out there shortly after Prince Prince died. Which yeah. It had for anyone else to do it, <laughs> you would you you kind of ra- you would ra- raise one eyebrow. But knowing but knowing just how important um he, he was in your in your development we've gone right back to the very it, it, the right we talked about your very first um steps into music and mm. it's been a, a um a, a constant throughout throughout it um so tell us a story about how you, how you wrote oceans of oceans of purple yeah so it just um it, i was in the studio with um i was working with paul Upworth, um the week that Prince died, and I think I think two days before he'd he'd um, had a message from Leanne expressing some concern about Prince's health, and yeah. you know I just I couldn't really allow myself to believe that you know his his time was up, um, and then I I came into the studio a couple of days later, and it was the day he died, and um, I just remember it was you know. Uh, it had it has been such a such a strange year and obviously you know having just lost Bowie hit me pretty hard and um but the prince thing was just next level it just kind of had you know yeah. it was a real just this visceral kind of sense of loss and um you know i grief i suppose you know i've had my fair share of grief in my life and and i I recognize it and I sort of know what to do with it and I know that it's something again that is painful but it needs to be confronted yeah and it needs to find expression and um, for me to be okay so actually um, I just had this immediate reaction and um, I remember taking myself off into a into a side room while everyone was busy working on the track and I just sort of disappeared into into a room on my own and, and started writing that song and it just kind of it just sort of poured out of yeah. me you know very um, it was it was really um, very immediate and um, and true to how I was feeling and 
Um, it felt I had a, I had a moment of uncertainty about whether that was just something I needed to do for yeah. myself. Um, but I, I felt a real compulsion to, to put it out in the world and to try and do something positive, you know, to, to actually take that feeling and that sense of loss and allow it to become something positive. And, um, you know, Prince was someone who, um, who you know, he did a lot of um, charitable work and supported, like, the development of musicians and in and, and lots of ways that, um, you know, he didn't do it publicly. Ostentatiously, no, it's um, always very, very quiet, you know, not... Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I started thinking about people who've supported me and, you know, um, I just, just wanted to find a way to, to do something in his honour. Um, so yeah, we put that track out basically. Proceeds went to Nordal Robbins. In a way, uh, in a way which you're able to now with, with immediacy, which, yeah. um, which Prince had a kind of a, a, a sort of a schizophrenic relationship with with the internet, I think, yeah. because on the one hand, his, uh, his his big, he had numerous beefs with his record label throughout his, his career, mm. but the big thing, I think, in, t- in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the very kind of public uh, protests that he, he was making um, in, the, in the 90s, r- related to, to the fact that he, he wanted this, as I understand it, so you, you know, you'll know this better than me, that he wanted to release music how and when he wanted. Yes, you know, yeah, if he wanted exactly. to do 10 albums a year, or yeah. if he wanted to do um, an, al- an, an eight-hour-long record, he wanted the ability to do that. Mm. But the, um, the, uh, the confines of the, the recording agreement, damn those lawyers, um, <laughs> meant, that, <laughs> meant that he, he, he was tied into a, a traditional album by album. An mm-hmm. album must be, uh, be not less than 50 minutes long, it mm. contain 11 recordings, etc, etc. Um, so on the one hand, there was a period during, you know, pre-internet where, where the it, it would have been the, the perfect time for him to be, you know, to, had he had that, that creative output in 2016, 2017, mm. God knows what, you know, what, what what you'd be, what you'd be hearing, yeah. what you'd be hearing. Um, so on the one hand, he was uh, very, um, you know, he, he he wanted to be able to express himself with the degree of the immediacy that the internet affords. But when the internet arrives, and the, for whatever reasons, he, he has a he has a, a more um, he has more reservations about about. Um, re- about how his music music's released. Mm. Where do you? I mean, he his music's not on Spotify. Yes. Um, and you, you know, you try and uh, uh, heaven forbid, I try and put a Prince clip on this. Um, <laughs> it will be it'll be hunted down by Prince bots and mm-hmm. removed and removed from from the internet. What do you? What What do you think is what as an artist? What do you What do you think it informs informs that? that stance do you agree with it yeah i just i think he's he's so interesting because you know a bit like bowie he's kind of like ahead of the game yeah in in one sense kind of preempting the internet i sort of i empathize with artists wanting to to control their output basically that and have ownership of their output and in in a sense you know when i think about the future it's i i'm i'm you know i'm always thinking about um sort of self-sustainability, I suppose, um, and and control, you know, because yeah. especially, you know, as as we were talking about earlier today, earlier this morning, just the way things are going, the sorts of definitions of success are, are really quite sort of abstract. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's actually kind of, you know, depending on which way you're looking at the coin either a really depressing time or an incredibly exciting time or maybe a, a mixture of the two because um, it feels like there's not really any value in looking at things in a certain way anymore no. so actually it becomes really important to define things for yourself your and, own terms of reference yeah your own terms of reference your own definition of success and fulfillment I think um, I think that's it's really important for any creative life so I, my personal feeling is kind of each to their own yeah. I think everyone has to work out what their priorities are and those priorities might change at, at different points in a yeah. person's 
trajectory or career but I think that is that's the challenge for anybody trying to sustain a creative life you just have to try and work out what matters to you yeah and try to hold on to the things that matter to you and let go and collaborate and find compromise around the elements and, that it, and it may change you know it changes exactly. throughout throughout your throughout your life and and I suppose, and that's where it, where it become becomes interesting whether the the principles that informed prince when he was he was alive mm. presumably they those will his uh, you know the his estate will con, will continue to um to enforce, enforce that, so, yeah. they, so it's it's going to be really interesting to see how the net because I th- I think that's that's where I I struggle with it. You know, if you if you want to if you want because that's where Spotify for all its um, pros pros and cons where I feel it it's hu- where it's hugely important yeah. is that imagine fourteen year old David Kumu who's got access to a, to the a few of these these records that in, in, inspire him. Mm. Being, you know, how much deeper into the rabbit hole you can, you can you can go as someone with with that in, in quite inquiring mind. Whether yeah. whether that you know whether you whether gorging on uh, music to that extent is is, is healthy. Mm. So um, so Dave, I think we're coming to the end of end of our chat. I just want to thank you so much um, again for agreeing to be uh, the first. Um, participant the guinea pig. <laughs> in, in this I genuinely um, couldn't think of anyone I'd uh, rather sit and drink gallons of Earl Grey tea with oh. and talk about their life in life in, in music um, we've kind of touched on a bunch of stuff um, and you've highlighted how the, you know the, the the tendency to to focus on um, uh, you know on this this weird past 12 months that we've had um, so I thought it would be a good idea to kind of end on a note of optimism 2017 here we, <laughs> here we come it's um yeah what an extraordinary time I do think that um uh life is doing something to us right now it is it is forcing us to confront things and that may continue for the foreseeable future and that excites me on one level you know even though it terrifies me in some ways but I think that's what life is meant to do it's yep. excite and terrify and um, you know in some measure but I do think that it, it, it's beca- it's going to become increasingly difficult not to engage with what's happening in the world and I don't think that's a bad thing um, we, we really need to confront what is at the core of our lives and, and I, I, I'm hoping that that's the effect that, that all of these strange forces and circumstances in, in the world will have on us I think an, an increase in, in self-critical thought and the ability to actually look at the core of our own lives and, and what, what um, you know what the foundations and priorities are for us um, as human beings and, and um, it excites me to, to I have this sense that artists will want to respond to what's going on in the yeah. world and that that might change the dynamic and the conversation that, that, that is going on creatively, that it will be influenced by by um, the state of affairs and and um, I'm excited and I, I feel I feel the challenge is being laid before me to, to um, to work out what that means for me and how I want to express myself in, in the months to come. So yeah, that's that's one sort of huge aspect of of things. Uh, bring it closer to home. Yeah. Very close to home. Yeah. Like just down the road, road in, in Deptford. You're, am I right in saying you're moving into your own studio studio space? That, yes. Um, and is there anything you can tell us about about that? And yeah. Some new kind of creative destination in, in deepest, deepest depth <laughs> deepest southeast yeah it's so exciting I, I, it seems like an obvious thing to say but it's, it's there's something about building your own space um, that allows you to, to express something so fundamental you know it's, it's an opportunity to hopefully create the environment that, that yeah. I want for, for my creativity and the creativity of, of, of others I, I really you know I really aspire to it being a place where people 
you know, will be able to come and let their hair down, <laughs> you know, because I, I, I have a real belief as a, as a producer and, you know, again, just these, these themes that we've been discussing about cultural context, I think I think we have so much control of of our environments and, and yeah. the structures we create in our lives and that will then inform, inform the quality of, of what we make and what we do. And, um, yeah, I'm really, really interested in... in doing my part to create a space that is um, free and dynamic and where people can take risks and fall on their faces yeah. and um, it's just very exciting to, to be sort of doing that from the ground up and you know actually to be thinking about like what materials will actually make a place feel a certain way and you know it's very different to all the other spaces that I've inhabited where you know the last studio I was in we did do a build and I, I loved that place very much but it just feels like I have um yeah have a, a lot more control here and a real opportunity to to create something that I hope will um will kind of serve a, a creative community basically so that's yeah so so exciting. Dave I think we're, um, I've kept you long enough, but thank you so much for inviting me into your home, Such sharing your tea with me, um, and sharing your wisdom and insight. Um, it's been a real privilege. Thank you very much. <laughs>